Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Oh, I'm amazed we're beginning with this music. I just thought it would be Jeopardy theme song all the way. Uh, today's show is indeed about uh, Jeopardy. Um, I think I guess have to. I have to begin with one of my "I'm so old that" um, stories. So I'm so old that I was on the Jeopardy set the time that Thomas Edison le- lost to Nikola Tesla. No, that's actually not true. But um, I mean, none of it's true. But I am so old that I spent <laughs> I spent an afternoon in the 1980s walking around Hartford with Art Fleming. Now, for those of you who think that, you know, Alex Trebek was present not only at the creation of Jeopardy, but at the at, at the moment of creation. Um, that's not true. Art Fleming was the host before Alex Trebek. And he was the host then. And we walked around Hartford just talking about stuff. And I walked him over to um, a TV appearance. I, I have I have Art Fleming stories. I'm not going to tell them because they're basically not that interesting. But I, I don't want that noted in the record anyway that I have that claim to fame. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk to people who have uh, many, many more credentials uh, as experts about Jeopardy. Uh, and uh, we'll begin with Claire McNear, who is a staff writer at The Ringer, where she covers sports and culture. She's the author of Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. Also with us, and she's, you know, she's not like James Holzhauer or Ken Jennings or something like that in terms of, you know, holding records for this or that on Jeopardy. I think she might hold the record for the most appearances on this show now. I'm trying to think of somebody else who might have been on this show more times than Carolyn Payne. And I'm I'm drawing a blank, um, which is not unusual either, especially these days. So, uh, but Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. She's joining us via the miracle of Skype. And the reason she's joining us is that uh, Carolyn has a deep, deep abiding passion for Jeopardy. And possibly also a deep, deep abiding and ultimately thwarted passion for Alex Trebek. But we'll come to that. <laughs> we will come to that. Uh, we will come to whatever level of thirstiness Carolyn will confess to vis-a-vis Alex Trebek. But first, first we have to begin, uh, I think, with Claire. First of all, Claire, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. And, well, actually, before you say a word, uh, let's give the floor to somebody else. Let's give it to uh, John Oliver at the 2015 Emmys. It is my honor to present the Emmy for directing in a dramatic special movie or limited series. Uh, A limited series is, of course, a series that only runs for a limited time. Although, let's be honest, pretty much every series is a limited series. Every show on television will go off the air eventually, with the sole exception of Jeopardy. And I'll tell you why. The sun could burn out, humanity could flee to another galaxy, time as we know it could cease to exist, but Alex Trebek will still be there, scolding librarians from Ames, Iowa, to answer in the form of a question and passive-aggressively insulting their hobbies. So, really, he's a people person. So, really... 
This isn't so much a category as it is an elaborate way to exclude Jeopardy from winning yet another Emmy. The last sound emitted from Earth will be a Trebek sigh. Anyway, the nominees are... All right. Well, that's a prophecy which is both uh, real and, of course, uh, tragically inaccurate, as we now know. But um, but I'm going to ask, ask both of you a little bit about this. But, Carolyn, maybe you can get us started. Um, he does get at something, right? He, he is getting at some fundamental truth about Jeopardy as permanent in a way so many other things aren't. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with Jeopardy. There there was never a time in my life where Jeopardy with Alex Trebek didn't exist. Um, and it did kind of feel, I think, especially in the past couple couple of months uh, this year where so much of life was confusing and different um, and, and, and hard, Jeopardy became this like very soothing routine that I was like turning to uh, for that sense of normalcy and uh i i just it did really feel because that that trebek would just kind of be there guiding us and judging us forever <laughs> and uh yeah i i mean he the the show just really it's it's timeless there was like nothing it felt like this show couldn't uh it, it would just it would be perfect forever so, you know, there's, uh, I should say, I am also so old that I grew up with College Bowl, which was sort of a precursor to Jeopardy. But Claire, there is a way in which Jeopardy is Jeopardy, and then there's everything else, right? There's Jeopardy, and then there's every other game show, every other quiz show, every other anything that might conceivably resemble Jeopardy. That's all in a, a separate category. Uh, and can you say a little bit more about maybe even why you think Jeopardy stands alone in, in such an iconic way that even its theme song is now kind of a, 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 a score for thinking. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly this was true for me, but I think for a lot of people who love Jeopardy, even people who go on Jeopardy, it, it does feel like this totally separate entity. It's Jeopardy or nothing. They don't watch other game shows. In fact, maybe you look down on other game shows. It's the same crew and actually the same executive producer behind um, uh, Wheel of Fortune. And, and you know, I think Jeopardy fans in the next two feel <laughs> over kind of scoff at the idea of Wheel of Fortune. Who's watching that? Um, though, of course, many, many people are watching that as well. So I, I think that Part of it, yeah, is is this sense of nostalgia that it has been around for so, so long. There was the Art Fleming version that you mentioned in the 60s and 70s and, and this Trebek version. I mean, he was in the midst of taping his 37th season. Uh, you know, presidents come and go and and Trebek was still there. And, and it really is that the show has not changed much in all those years. You turn on an episode from, from 1984, his first year, and, you know, obviously the graphics look different. It's a different stage and he's got silly hair and a big mustache. But other than that, it is just the same show. And it always has been. You know, when I was saying there's Jeopardy and there's all these other game shows, I neglected to mention whatever the game show was that Carolyn hosted at the Mohegan Sun, which I kind of picture <laughs> like being like Jeopardy if Alex and Johnny Gilbert and all the contest, all the contestants and all the people running the board were drunk. Um, <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, definitely, uh, I clearly am never going to be an Alex Trebek. Uh, I couldn't even be a Pat Sajak or a Vanna White, but uh, Mohegan Sun let me attempt at that. Um, 
the the best part of that was that we actually got to write the trivia part because the trivia wasn't the important part. It was really just getting people inside a cash cube to grab at dollar bills floating around their head. Um, but writing the trivia was me channeling my inner Alex Trebek, although they did say, like, dial it back. These, these people are not on Jeopardy. They are. <laughs> yes. you know, Casino they may be dwellers. they may be in jeopardy, but they are not in uh, they are not on yeah. jeopardy. So, um, you know, Claire, until reading your book, I didn't quite understand the degree to which the formation myth of jeopardy and the continuing ethos of jeopardy were very much a kind of reaction formation uh, to the the quiz show scandals that had by quite a few years preceded it the quiz show scandals that you perhaps remember best uh, through the Robert Redford directed movie a quiz show uh, we will hear a little clip here from with Paul Schofield as Mark Van Doren the father of the contestant Charles Van Doren being played by uh, Ray Fiennes there by the way, the Van Dorans were both kind of part of uh, an intellectual oligarchy, a kind of permanent brainy aristocracy uh, in the Northeast. Uh, and uh, there was some real questions about whether uh, Charles Van Doren was tainting the family name by doing something as crass as being on a game show. Well, of course, Mark Van Doren had no idea what tainting could really become. Here's a little clip here. <laughs> Charlie, from what I understand, it's just this bunch of frauds showing off an erudition they didn't really have. All you have to do is... The problem is, is, that is, it seems I was one of those frauds. What? What, what do you mean? They gave me the answers. So, Claire, there was... Uh, the, the Those scandals were they struck at the core i think of some kind of post world war 2 intellectual confidence that america had that it was full of really smart people who were also upstanding it it hit much harder than one might have expected i mean there were actual you know serious investigations of this and the industry came out of it feeling pretty singed by the whole process and there it was i guess a long time before anybody wanted to attempt anything like it so maybe just tell a little bit more about that foundational myth involving Merv Griffin and his wife. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that was a great, you know, background of, of the quiz show scandals. And it was this, this, um, it was a huge thing in American culture. I think quiz shows themselves were really in their heyday in the fifties. They were hugely popular. So when it was revealed that, that a few of them, including 21 that Charles Van Doren was on, were, were kind of not being honest about this, were giving players the answers and, and, you know, having, telling their opponents to throw games, um, it was it was a really really big deal. It was front page news, um, and in fact, in the wake of that, um, one of the the results was that Congressman Communications Act, and it is now a federal crime to commit on a or uh, to to cheat. I'm sorry, on a quiz show, and um, so so the myth of Jeopardy is that Merv Griffin, uh, the creator of Jeopardy, um, was talking with his wife about um, he wanted to create a new game. He, he said that he really wanted to do a quiz show. And this was only a few years after after these scandals. So it was very much still in the public consciousness. And he said, well, the problem is that no no network is going to buy a quiz show. No, the audience isn't there. They don't believe it. They don't trust it. Um, and, and his wife said, well, why don't you just do 
exactly what is now illegal and just hand over the answer. And of course, that is what Jeopardy does with the what is, who is set up. And, and you know, it is, it is legal because they don't give them the other half of it. But in fact, Jeopardy's origin is really this kind of nose thumbing at, at the federal laws, which when it first came on the air in the 60s, I, I, audiences would have understood that kind of interplay. Um, so they, you know, were acknowledging that this had happened and that maybe you didn't trust them, but they were saying, look, you know, look here, we've got the, the goods for real. Yeah, you know, maybe nose thumbing a, a little bit, Claire, but I also sense from your book that there's a way in which this is still, to this day, all these decades later, taken very seriously. There's a yeah. sense in which Jeopardy is kind of Caesar's wife, you know, kind of has to be a, a absolutely above reproach, right yeah. down to things like, you know, people, the contestants don't interact with Trebek or didn't right. interact with Trebek <laughs> very much. And I think you write that one of the reasons that uh, Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings might not be able to be the successors uh, of Trebek is because there are these incredibly codified rules about who can have contact with whom. Yeah, it's um. So, so the the first question I think every Jeopardy contestant is is asked um, is is what is Trebek really like, and and they don't really know most of them because, like you said, uh, he interacts with the the day's material. He sits down with all the games at the beginning of, of each tape 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 in um, and and practices the clues. And so he, he knew the answers when he was on the set. So most contestants never really got any interaction with him other than, you know, that, that, uh, you know, thanks for joining us today, folks, basically exactly what you see in an episode. And then he kind of turns on his heel and leaves the stage at, at the end of that. So they never really get that kind of chit chat with Alex. Um, but yeah, one of the problems is that there are these really complex rules about the sanctity of, of Jeopardy. And one of them is that if you know anybody involved in the show, you can't compete on it. You, you can't. It doesn't matter what their job is. They could be the guy who, you know, scans people's badges or something. Doesn't matter. They work for Jeopardy. They don't even want the illusion of any kind of cheating or or preference or or anything like that. There is a lawyer who sits just off the, the Jeopardy stage during each taping um, for what's called standards and practices. And basically just enforcing this, keeping an eye on everything. She randomly chooses which game it will be uh, on each tape day so that, you know, you couldn't have found out beforehand. Um, so, yeah, that is one of the problems with, with a Ken Jennings or a Brad Rutter in that they're both very active in this greater trivia community and have been for quite some time. So they know a lot of the people who are trying to get on Jeopardy. And, and the question is, you know, would, would that make it so those people couldn't actually go on the show if, if one of them became a host? Uh, we might as well add that final uh, telling detail, Claire. You win your first game of Jeopardy and you want to go to the bathroom uh, before you have to do the next one because <laughs> they do five in one day. Uh, Claire, explain what happens. Yeah, when you, when you are on the Jeopardy set as a contestant, um, you are being monitored at basically all times. And one of the ways in which this happens is for contestants, for the newly crowned champion, that you if you want to go to the bathroom between games, you are escorted by a producer who stands out front, like, <laughs> like watches the door to make sure nobody's in there with a encyclopedia or something like that. So it's, it's taken so 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 seriously and i think that is a surprise for a lot of people because it is like this silly game right but um they it is very much like a state secret when you are uh, at jeopardy you know carolyn i also <laughs> wonder whether that explains why there's there's so much comedy 
uh, around Jeopardy, whether it's uh, Will Ferrell doing Celebrity Jeopardy or Black Jeopardy on, on, on SNL or Weird Al Yankovic uh, songs or, <laughs> or things from The Simpsons. And Carolyn, I feel like one of the reasons is, you know, it would be harder to do that much good comedy about Wheel of Fortune because Wheel of Fortune you know, isn't a particularly substantial thing in the first place. I think some of the seriousness of Jeopardy really invites a kind of reciprocal comedy. Absolutely. And, and you know, Jeopardy is, it has this uh, elite intelligence about it. Um, and these contestants go on there. They're very, very smart. And so there's there's great potential for comedy there of, a contestant getting on that show and just not being able to live up. And I, you know, like with the whole celebrity jeopardy thing where you just have these celebrities to on SNL where they do these parodies, of these celebrities not even being able to answer like name any letter of the alphabet and they can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but that the comedy of that for, on on all sorts of things that have referenced Jeopardy. Golden Girls, that's like one of my favorite Jeopardy references in pop culture. Dorothy, who considers herself very intelligent, is auditioning for Jeopardy and has this like fever dream that she gets on the show. And Rose, who wrote, you know, is not as smart or she perceives her to not be as smart, is like killing it and she is clamming up. Um, and the idea of just getting on Jeopardy and tanking uh, is filled with with great comedy potential. Um, in reading your book, Claire, that to me, it just made me laugh because I have taken the Jeopardy test and I sit at home and I'm real smug about how much I know. But I know for a fact, if I had ever actually ended up on that show with Alex Trebek staring at me and that buzzer situation, I would have been a mess. I would have caved under pressure like I never have before. I am a comedian who has gone on stage and bombed. But being on Jeopardy, I would have been... I would have been such such a ball of anxiety. Like I would have felt like Trebek was judging me and he would have been. And I wouldn't have gotten that buzzer timed with the light cue. And I, I would have gotten so many things wrong. And uh, so I think that, that that's what makes Jeopardy. There is just such a wealth of humor to tap into there because anything that is has that level of anxiety, you can make funny because it people love to laugh at something that, makes them nervous. Right. It also has a very recognizable form so that when they do Black Jeopardy on SNL and their categories uh, are, you know, they, they sort of vamp on what are real Jeopardy categories, but they have a very sp a specific style to them. I mean, that alone makes you laugh. So, Claire, you know, let's go back to the John Oliver thing, because in a way, I think Carolyn is touching upon a really interesting thing about Trebek, which is there's a way in which a tone is struck by Trebek on the show that yes. is an odd combination of kindliness and, as Carolyn was suggesting, judgment. You know, I think you cite <laughs> an example of somebody who's describing her hobby that was some kind of music. And after Trebek finally sorted out what was being talked about, he went, in other words, losers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, Clara, I, we, we could probably do a four hour show on Trebek and everything that everybody has ever projected onto him. But what's your overall take? What was his magic? Yeah, I mean, I think there were two things going on at once. And the first is that to a really significant degree, he, he kind of was who he seemed to be in that he really did 
care about trivia. He, he cared about all these obscure facts. He thought that they were important to know. One of the great things I got to do in writing the book was just talk to a lot of contestants. I talked to about a hundred over the course of writing it. And what I heard from a lot of them is, is when you watch Jeopardy, you can see Trebek um, walk over to, to where the contestants are at their lecterns at, at the end of an episode and shakes the champion's hand. And, and you can see him talking to them, but you can't hear what, what is going on. You can't hear what's said. And, and what I heard is, is that often he was just talking about final jeopardy. If he thought it was a difficult clue, he was asking them how they worked it out. You know, how, did you get this part of the clue? Did you, you know, how, how did you know that basically? Or worse, if they got it wrong, you know, <laughs> absolutely heartbroken, just lost Jeopardy, this lifelong dream. He's like, oh, come on. Didn't you, didn't you know that? Like, don't you remember seeing this in the news? So he really, he really cared about that. And I think you could tell when you were watching Jeopardy. But the other part of that is he really was a great performer. And I, I think he was very aware of the fact that uh, people really enjoyed his disappointed dad act. These kind of, you know, when he raises an eyebrow to a contestant who's just said something silly in their Q and A, he really he knew that that was just a beloved part of it, and and beloved by the contestants also. Um, so he he knew how to to, to sort of ham it up at times. So my uh, favorite, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Trebekisms, if you will, is when he is interviewing the contestants and they, you know, give whatever sort of mundane fact about their life that they are sharing. And he will just respond with the good for you. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> a good friend just, of mine cut right. made, like I, a super cut of all the good for you's. And it's great. It's it. great because he never means it. <laughs> no, ever. And in fact, when, so, when I'm texting and somebody says something to me, one of my favorite responses is to send a Trebek, a, like a gif of a Trebek, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think yeah, I do think we all play the ga games of you know trying to look behind the kind of sphinx-like exterior uh, of Alex, uh -huh. and and I, I, in particular, would try to figure out. I mean, I feel like there have been some contestants that he didn't like all that much. Um, I felt like he never really warmed warmed up to Arthur Chu, uh, who I should say has been on this program multiple times. Um, and, and I think even Holzhauer, it took him a, a, a long time to decide to like Holzhauer. He just seemed like a kind of different uh, person from maybe the kind of champion that, that Alex was used to. And we'll come to that in, in a little bit. But uh, we also have to talk about Carolyn's theory that Alex Trebek was, in addition to all of this uh, other stuff, kind of a sex symbol. And it turns out <laughs> that they, when they were first starting to market him, or not first, but long ago uh, when they were marketing him, it seems as though the producers or the network or somebody saw it the same way. Uh, here's uh, an old Jeopardy promo. You can stay here. It may be dangerous. How do you think I got the yacht? By putting yourself in Jeopardy. Jeopardy, the game that puts you at risk, starring Alex Trebek. Then you don't mind being in Jeopardy? Jeopardy is my life. It's the second exciting game I know. <laughs> 30 weekdays starting September the 9th on TV5. So, Carolyn, I think you're fairly certain about what you think is the most exciting game Alex Trebek knew. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, I have to tell people if they have not actually seen these, they need to go on YouTube because the audio just does not the visual of that is really Trebek has this like James Bond white tux on 
you know, he's he's young. It's it's the '80s. He's got the full stash. Uh, it, I, I mean, it, it's funny because like when I was a little kid and my parents watched Jeopardy, I, I didn't like look at Trebek then and think like, yes, give me that. Like he is hot. Like I didn't look at him that way. So it's funny for me that as I, I got older, I was like, yeah, Trebek, like he, he, you know, he has a going on. He is a, he's a silver fox. <laughs> um, so it, it was funny to me to see him marketed as that because he does, like we talked about, he kind of has that like disappointed dad vibe, but he also has that like sexy daddy vibe. Um, and and some of it I think is, is that attitude where he would sort of be judgmental and like you want that approval. So there, there I think that that kind of played into it. Um, but I I mean, those, those commercials from the 80s are really... I, 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 that I can't get that image out of my head now. <laughs> you know, uh, Claire, another image that neither Carolyn nor I can get out of our heads now because of you is that Alex's way of relaxing might involve the glass of Chardonnay. Claire, yeah. that just, that just seems kind of off brand somehow. Yeah. I, I, he, he knew, he knew that I think he knew that it was surprising. So one of his great personal traditions um, was that between uh, taping games, they would tape five games straight in a in a tape day. While the champion was, you know, taken backstage to breathe into a bag and change into tomorrow's <laughs> outfit, he he would sort of hold court on the Jeopardy stage with the studio audience and just just take questions from anybody. And he knew that people um, were really surprised when he did things like swear or talk about drinking. And he just so could deliver a punchline. So you know, I obviously do not have his delivery, but but people would ask what he did in his spare time. And, and he would very frequently deadpan, I drink. <laughs> it was it was great. It was great. So, yeah, I mean, he loved his, his Chardonnay. He owned, I think, a, a vineyard briefly um, for a time there outside Los Angeles. So I think he was fairly committed to the cause. But like Chardonnay yeah, yeah. just feels like, I don't know, that that to me just feels like a kind of like a housewife kind of drink. <laughs> I really wanted, I really wanted Trebek to be like, a whiskey drinker or, or at least, you know, at least something like a, a nice deep red wine, like something (laughs) much, it just, Chardonnay felt too lowbrow. Like when I read that in the book, I I couldn't believe it. I was like, no, he's just making that up. (laughs) I refuse to accept the image of him with just like a buttery Chardonnay. So, uh, by the way, uh, Jonathan McPants points out that there is um, a video of Alex Trebek swearing a lot while trying to tape some (laughs) promos. If you would like your other visions of Alex Trebek to be exploded all in one day. Uh, All right. So let's take a little break here. We're going to come back. We'll have more of Claire, more of Carolyn and more to come. I was there to match my intellect on national TV against a plumber and an architect, both with a PhD. I was tense, I was nervous. I guess it's... The answer is it's the next federal holiday after Washington's birthday. Where's Lincoln's birthday? Memorial Day. Memorial Day is it, selling. This country's largest lake, Chapala, is located near the city of Guadalajara. What is Mexico? Leslie. What is Mexico? Correct. Makes rivers for 600. This South American lake drains into the smaller lake. What is Titicaca? In Bolivia. 
Jim. What is Titicaca? Correct. In 1915, President Wilson proclaimed this holiday as the second Sunday in May. Richard. What is Mother's Day? Right. Yeah, Jim. It's a stupid show. Yeah, no. His reign was the shortest on record in glory again. Who was John Paul I? Right. Ruling class for 800, Alex. 18th century czar who... Who is Peter the Great? Who is the Emperor of Constantine? Who is King John? Yes, correct. He's in his own, man. Who is Victoriano Huerta? You are right. Ooh. What is a Tolstoy? All right, that's a, just a, a montage sampling a very few of the possible uh, pop culture cuts and references to Jeopardy at the end. You hear Rosie Perez uh, in White Men Can't Jump, uh, where her whole storyline is uh, she wants to get on Jeopardy. And and with that in mind, first of all, let me remind you who's on the show. Uh, Clara McNear, who is a staff writer at The Ringer, where she covers sports, including Jeopardy, and culture, including Jeopardy. And she's the author of Answers in the Form of a Questions, A Definitive History, and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. And I can already tell we're not going to be able to cover a lot of stuff in Claire's book about just kind of like how the whole thing works and the behind the scenes stuff. You're just going to have to get the book and read about that. It's fascinating stuff. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer. Uh, I, I could go on, but anyway, she's with us now. She probably holds the record for most appearances on the Colin McEnroe show. So I want to ask both of you about this, but I'm going to start with you, Claire. One thing I think we do have to make time for is just to talk about how damn hard it is to get on Jeopardy. Maybe just give us a sense of, of what the process is. Yeah, I, that was one of the things I really wanted to cover in um, this book. So for, for a lot of contestants, Jeopardy is a lifelong dream, and many of them spend years and years trying to get there. And the, the numbers are crazy. So every year, about 100,000 people take the online Jeopardy contestant test. It's this famously difficult 50-question test. It is widely thought that 35 is a passing score, but Jeopardy doesn't tell you how you did, and they don't tell you how well you would have to do. It's all kind of a mystery. So about 2,500 people are chosen from that group of 100,000 to go to the next step, which is an audition. And usually that's in person. Of course, this year it's over Zoom. They take another one of these tests. Again, they're not told how they do, how well they'd have to do. They play a mock game. And from that 2,500, only about 400 people each year uh, go to compete on Jeopardy. There just aren't that many slots. There are about 230 episodes a year. Um, so the numbers are, are are quite difficult. It's it's very selective. And, and so there are a lot of people who are very brilliant, who are very good at this kind of trivia thing, who are Jeopardy fans, who just spend years and years trying to get there. So like James Holzhauer, for example, took the online contestant test 13 straight years before he was finally chosen to be on the show. And of course, then went on that crazy winning streak last year, 32 games, two and a half million dollars. So it's, it's just very difficult. And it becomes this kind of obsession for a lot of people. So some of them spend years basically training for this maybe chance of someday going on Jeopardy. Carolyn, have you tried to get on Jeopardy? Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> I've taken the test like maybe, maybe 10 times, maybe more. Um, and now I think it's just they have it kind of online. You can constantly take it. Um, and they also have practice tests. Sometimes when I'm bored, I just do. I just do those just for fun. But uh, I, I mean, I never... I think I do pretty well on them, but I've never been contacted to go to the next step. Um, but I, I, I think that it, it's, it's funny because there are so many things that I think that you would have to prepare. I think 
even if I did manage to have gotten called in for some sort of next level testing, I would have I would have failed at that because I'm I'm just horrible at geography. That's where everything that's where everything falls apart for me. Um, and I so I think one of the things that like fascinates me is that people who know they're going to be on this show or the idea of like training to even get ready to be on this show. I kind of never realized that that's a that there is. I learn more about it through now with all these, you know, with like Ken Jennings and Holtower and all that. And it comes out that they live this trivia culture life. And I definitely don't live a trivia culture life. So clearly that's where I would fall apart because this is something that they train for this, like how you would train to run a marathon. Uh, and I guess I just never really I I didn't realize that this is such an, uh, a culture that you get embedded into. So, uh, I, wanna, so I, I want to talk very specifically about this. This is the thing that I really wanted to get at in this segment. And and, and in order to do it, because I think there is this transition that's gone on, and I don't know how I feel about it entirely. But, Claire, just as an illustrative point, I want you to tell the story uh, about the guy who was a cop, who was one of the early Jeopardy celebrities. This is back when they had kind of a, th that five-win limit. You, know, you couldn't get past that. But just explain who he was uh, and, and sort of how he functioned on the show. Yeah, so you're talking about Frank Spangenberg, who was this NYPD officer in the, the transit police. And uh, in the 90s, he went on the show and, um, and he won five games. So he retired undefeated because they did boot five-time champions at that time. Um, and he, he set the record for uh, the, the most winnings ever in that, that five-day window. And in fact, when, when doubled, because they doubled the clue values not that many years later, that record stood all the way until James Holtower. So he was a very, oh. very, very dominant um, player. So so Frank Sangenberg kind of became this early uh, Jeopardy celebrity in the way that Ken Jennings would a, a, a decade later, or James Holtower a decade after that. Um, so he was on Letterman and he, he became this kind of household name very much had his, his 15 minutes of fame. Was recognized at the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, uh, the woman who saw him was much more excited about him than about the Grand Canyon. So, uh, you know, Claire, to Carolyn's point, I do feel as though there's been a maturation and kind of a change. And there's been sort of two changes. One of them is they lifted that five game limit, which I, I think was a very smart move. You ultimately want to have superstars. I mean, the old rule was like in college basketball for 10 years, dunking was illegal, you know, which really doesn't really make any sense. Um, and, and similarly, you want to have rivalries. You want to have Bird versus Magic. You want to have McEnroe versus Borg. You want those things. Um, but I think the other thing that's happened is this new kind of contestant has emerged who, to Carolyn's point, is not some cop who discovered he was good at it by throwing a quarter into a pool with his fellow cops at the end of the workday to see who could get final jeopardy, but because... Not you know not people who just happened to be good at it, but people who have immersed themselves in the in this culture, and then added the attitude of quants. You know, there's just a lot of quantitative analysis and game theory that's going into this now uh, about what you should do in terms of wagers, what you should do in terms of locating the daily double. And Claire, maybe you could speak a little bit to this almost professionalization of the Jeopardy contestant. Yeah, I mean, so Jeopardy is is designed to be played from your couch. That that is the way the game is built, the way the show is built, that that is what it is for. Um, and, and of course, watching from your couch, the great, wonderful, beautiful myth 
dream is uh is is that you could go on Jeopardy and you could win. And I mean, who has not enjoyed playing along? And you know, you get the clue that that none of the contestants got. And you're like, ah, these these suckers. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I could easily have won tonight. I would have won a whole bunch of money. But I, what I wanted to do in the book is is capture this moment that is exactly what you said. We really are at this moneyball moment for Jeopardy. It used to be even five, ten years ago, if you were preparing to go on Jeopardy, and, and most contestants get get the call inviting them to come play about four weeks before they have to be in Los Angeles to tape. So they've got kind of that month to prepare however they want to do it. It used to be that, you know, maybe you'd make some president flashcards, vice president flashcards, you know, brush up on your Shakespeare titles and characters. That has totally changed. So today's contestants, and this is not everybody, but this has kind of become the norm in just the last few years. They they construct homemade buzzers to, to practice their buzzer reaction time. They design game simulators to basically play full games of Jeopardy in their living rooms. They, they use really vast amounts of data to determine where exactly a daily double is likeliest to be, how exactly to bet in Final Jeopardy. There's some really complicated math to tell them what to do. People just study very, very, very intensively, and and that really is is a pretty new thing. I, I think so too, and I I don't know how I feel about it, Carolyn. As a fan, I think as fans we both found Holzhauer very, very entertaining. But I feel like he might even be a third wave kind of contestant in the sense that he's all the things that Claire just described. But he also had a sense, he had a kind of ironic and Homeric detachment from the whole thing, too. There's a way in which he always had that little half smile as though he 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 somehow there knew that he was in on some kind of joke that we didn't exactly get, which to me makes him a little bit different from a hyper serious quant. Yeah, actually. I kind of uh, fall into an unpopular category where I am not a whole tower fan. Um, <laughs> I actually, uh, I I actually couldn't wait for him to get like you know beat. It was it was a happy day for me when whole tower finally when his reign ended. Um, and, and his smile, I mean, I actually used to make fun of him. I was like, does this man not know how to smile? It looks so forced. It looked like he had never smiled in his life. And then, you know, somebody was like, this is how you smile. And he's like, am I doing it right? And I think some of that was like nerves because he did seem to relax. And I will admit there were moments that as he continued on and on on the show, I started to like warm to him slightly. Um, but he was just such a machine you know, there was almost this non-human quality about him that made him just this, it, it, it was like if Watson the computer had come to life, it was him. And it, he was just like dominating the show and making it, it, it was, for me, it kind of took something away. Uh, well, although I will say this, and so I'm about to reveal myself as uh, something of a Jeopardy nerd, uh, but Claire, it did seem to me that when we got into the greatest of all time stuff, Holzhauer kind of, I think he was the one who started like high-fiving Ken Jennings and, and, and being <laughs> sort of collegial in a way that maybe the other guys didn't even quite understand. There was a sense that Holzhauer had a, wow, I'm kind of just glad to be here with you guys, to be one of you guys, and, and we're going to have fun. I, I, I felt as though, Claire, and I, I could be wrong, and you're the expert, Holzhauer was the one who figured out that, that that whole thing could be fun in a way that just gutting it through, you know, 20 games of Jeopardy wouldn't be. 
Yeah, I mean, to get back to your earlier point, um, which is something I talk about a bit in the book, I by removing that five-game limit, uh, which they did in the early 2000s, just before Ken Jennings then came on and won a whole bunch of games, uh, they really allowed for the creation of characters on the show. I mean, you are a James fan, or you hate James, or you know, you're rooting for Ken, like you care about these rivalries, and it, it really changes um, the way that you watch the show. But I, I think Jeopardy! has realized and the contestants have realized and Alex Trebek had realized that it it's fun to have a little bit of fun with it. I mean, it's not a model that allows much, uh, you know, diversion. Like contestants can't really do very much. I mean, they get like two sentences in the Q&A. Maybe they get to make a silly face at the beginning of the episode, but that's it. Like that's all you get at, for, uh, on the personality front. But I think we've seen over the last few years, um, Players like James Holtower, who who do kind of lean into the the kind of fun sporting element of it, and, and they're just a little bit silly, a little bit loose. They, I mean, it's a TV show, and and we saw that with uh, players like Austin Rogers, the bartender from mm-hmm. New York. We saw that yeah. with Buzzy Cohen. Um, both of whom helped me a lot with <laughs> What's so sad is that Carolyn and I know exactly who you're talking about when you, yeah. when you throw out these names. You know, we, we have to take a break just because I want to leave some time here for Sherry Cohen uh, to join us uh, after this. We, we do want to make sure that we get a chance to talk to somebody who has had the experience uh, of going up there uh, and facing uh, this in, in all of its terror uh, and perhaps not getting the outcome that one had hoped for. Okay, it's time to do credits. Let's see if I can figure out how to do this. Okay, uh, this no-drama feline makes listening to the Colin McEnroe show a fancy feast every day. Who is Cat Pastor, Alex? Uh, and uh, this grumpy but humorous producer uh, works hard on the show and never slacks. Who is Jonathan McPants, Alex? That is correct. Those are the two people I have to thank uh, for working hard on the show here today. Uh, we're doing a show about Jeopardy. We want to thank Carolyn Payne for her contributions. But she didn't get Final Jeopardy. She didn't. Uh, she was zeroed out before Final Jeopardy, so we had to uh, pull her off of her podium. Uh, still with us, Claire McNear. She's the author of Answers in the Form of Questions the definitive and insider's guide to Jeopardy. We have barely scratched the surface of this book, so you have to get it and read it. Sherry Cohen is joining us, a director of communications at the New School for Social Research. And in 2017, she was a contestant on Jeopardy. She wrote about this, learning life's hardest lessons in the form of a question for Tablet. Uh, Sherry, welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, I have this theory that if Everybody in your life is always telling you, you should be on Jeopardy. You should go on Jeopardy. You should never go on Jeopardy. Uh, and I'll explain later why I think that. But was that the case for you? Did you have like a lot of people going, oh, you know, that like they watch the show with you. You know all the answers. So they say, you got to go on Jeopardy. Oh, 100%. Um, but I also myself wanted to be on Jeopardy. So it was a combination of uh, a, a, a self goal and also the encouragement of family, friends, um, people I've been on trivia teams with in high school and in college and after college doing pub quiz. So there was definitely a lot of encouragement. 
And I will say I've recommended certain people go on Jeopardy who have said never, I'll never do it. Um, but I think the encouragement is a big step in getting people to try out. Although, yeah, I have to say, the smartest person I know, in a way, particularly in terms of speed of thought and voraciousness of intellect and and diversity of, of, of genres in which he seems fluent, uh, is Mike Pesca. And Mike Pesca went on Jeopardy and lost his first game. And I like I can't fathom that. that. To me, he's the perfect example of somebody who was probably told, rightly so, by everybody, you should go on Jeopardy. But Sherry, one thing that you discovered is you could be rocking on Jeopardy one moment and falling out of the sky the next without triggering you too much. I mean, just uh, give us a sense of what happened for, uh, for you on the show. Sure. I would say that that's exactly what happened. I had what I thought was like the breadth and depth of knowledge. I practiced uh, ringing in on a pen at home. I had done buzzer games before. I was pretty sure I had the package together. And then so quickly things can change for you. And when you're filming the show, it's kind of like, how did that go by so quickly? Like, where did where did Double Jeopardy go? Wait a minute. Uh, and when I was on the show, uh, I started out in a single Jeopardy round and uh, was doing well, felt like I was on a roll. You kind of get into this rhythm with the buzzer. You get to choose the categories. You get this feeling when you're getting it right. And what happened was that I got a daily double that that stumped me. I had the words in the back of my head, but I couldn't put the right ones together and get it out. And I just ended up like staring there and shaking my head. All right, Sherry, Sherry, I'm going to ask you just to put your fingers in your ears for 34 seconds because you don't want to hear this, but we're going to play it. Here we go. Oh, no. Okay. History for 1,000. Answer. You have the lead. Aaron and John tied for second. I'll bet uh, 2,500. Okay. Here is your clue. Retracing this 1930s journey will take you thousands of miles from Ruijin to Yan'an. Sherry? What is the... uh... What is the long march? The long march, Mao. Now, first of all, now, Sherry, get back up off the floor, get out of the fetal position. Um... Uh, sorry to trigger you, but I mean, that, that would have happened to me in, in a heartbeat when you're reaching really hard for something and you kind of know what it is, but then you think it might be another thing too. I, I'm assuming that's pretty much what happened to you. Yeah. It, it's one of the worst feelings where you think, you know, it, you're not sure. Um, sometimes it's better to say something than nothing at the very last, very least you may actually get it right. But there was just kind of too much going on in my head at that moment. And it did kind of throw me. Um, I will say, though, that I am proudly sitting up in this chair right now. I can watch the episode a few years later and not feel that that horrible wave of like, ah, what happened? Uh, what happened in that moment? I, I, you know, going on the show is a huge emotional experience. Um, as uh, Claire mentioned earlier, people take this test like multiple times. It's a life goal. Uh, so to have that happen, you're dealing with such an interplay of emotions during the taping and then afterwards as you process what happens. It can, being on the show can really take a toll on you positively and negatively. But today it's, it's great to be able to talk about it, to be in a community with Jeopardy alumni, uh, we are all kind of like connected by that shared experience. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, even if you were in the NFL for 
three quarters of one season, you were an NFL player. You know, even if you were an Olympian <laughs> who didn't medal, you were an Olympian. And and yeah. it's the same thing, right, Sherry? I mean, you got on the show, you played the game, you know what it's like to chit chat with Alex for those brief intervals. I, I, that's something nobody could take away, I assume. Yeah, exactly. And I think people were trying to reinforce that to me after the show. And I seemed like kind of distressed about, about it. You know, like you had this amazing opportunity. And in the moment, that didn't matter. I had wanted to win the show. And it sounds a little corny, but that experience of having been on the show, of meeting Alex, um, he shared some choice advice with me after the show. And I kind of looked like I was in, in shock. Um, you know, he, he turned to me where we're, we're having that little contestant talk after the end, the credits are rolling. And he said, you know, like expletive happens just about my experience. And I was kind of like, I can't believe Alex Trebek said that to me. It turns out he does like to swear a great deal. Uh, and I got to experience that personally. No one can take that away from no me. No one can yeah. take that away from me. Okay, so <laughs> by the way, uh, read Claire McNear's book, everybody, because there's a great description of what goes on in the hotel bar afterwards, uh, mm -hmm. where the people who won and the people who lost are mingling and exchanging. And even if you didn't want to play Jeopardy, you want to be in that bar. It just sounds uh, really, really interesting. So Claire, we've only got about a minute left. Uh, we had a conversation on a different episode of the show recently about who might succeed Alex Trebek. One thing that's really interesting is uh, when I put it up on Facebook, there was an evenly divided number of people saying it has to be Ken Jennings and uh, uh, an equal number saying it, anybody but Ken Jennings. I mean, it's weird how polarizing some of this stuff is. Yeah, I mean, he, he is, he's very much the obvious choice, right? Because he's not only synonymous with Jeopardy, which is, was true of perhaps two people in the world, and he was, he was one of them and Alex Trebek was the other. But he is this kind of, you know, brainy, patient, wise, funny figure um, that that would make a lot of sense. Um, but but he is polarizing. He absolutely is because he he has become this character in that universe. There there are Ken fans and there are people who rooted for people to beat Ken. Yeah, I, I sort of think it would be great if it were him. But I also I love uh, the Lavar Burton idea idea. We came up with Katie Tour as another possibility. Anyway, we have to go, unfortunately. Uh, thanks to everybody who made the, today's show so great. Great to visit with Sherry Cohen uh, and relive her memories. Claire McNear, her book is terrific. We have barely scratched the surface of it. Carolyn Payne is always terrific. Thank you for listening.